0: work out the technology. There we go. That sounds good. How's everyone doing? That was a pretty good morning tea, right? So four of you liked it. That's great. Wow, that's really really good. We've been so blessed here today and continue will be blessed by the sponsorship, hospitality of, uh, of course, many organizations and companies and churches and people coming together to make this day all that it is. So although I have no real uh, ecclesial authority here anymore, right? <laughs> like, that's a thing. Um, why don't you go ahead and just take some time to thank our volunteers throughout the day. I know you're ready to applaud, then kind of done. But throughout the day, if you see someone volunteering or helping out or serving, uh, make sure you just give them a, give them a thanks and a, just a word of appreciation. I think that would really be the, the right thing to do. We really are blessed by our hosts and those that are taking such good care of us here today. Grab a Bible, turn with me to the book of Acts, Chapter 20, the book of Acts, chapter 20. My assignment here in this second of the three sessions I've been assigned here today at Stand Firm is to talk about uh, shepherds, pastors that stand firm, ministers that stand firm. Let's get it right. Shepherds that can stand firm. There we go. That felt a little bit more natural, didn't it? Shepherds that can stand firm. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 20, see how God would speak to us in and through his word here this morning, and then we're going to dive into what this looks like. What is the, what is the apostolic profile for ministry? The Apostle Paul has been on many missionary jaunts and journeys. Planted many churches, extremely fruitful, being compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And as far as Paul is concerned, the Holy Spirit has been revealing to him. And just the providential nature of events makes it pretty clear that this trip to Jerusalem, as far as Paul is concerned, will be his last. In fact, at the end of this speech he gives to the Ephesian elders, he tells them, I know that none of you will ever see my face again. Again, this is the the final charge of the apostle of Jesus Christ to local church ministry, elders, pastors, and those that seek to shepherd the flock of God. We're not going to read the whole speech, although that would be of tremendous value to us. We're going to pick it up at verse 28. Just read a few verses here. Then we're going to dive into some of the content of what we discover here in God's word. Acts 20, verse 28, to the elders of the church of god pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the holy spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of god which he obtained with his own blood i know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. The last three wo- or the first three words of verse 31 will end with these. Paul says, "Therefore, be alert. Be alert." In fact, Paul will reiterate with these elders. He says, "Night and day." Even through tears, Paul says, I reminded you to stand firm. I reminded you to be steadfast, to be alert, to be on guard for the flock of God, which has come at the purchase of the inestimable value of the very blood of God in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're sitting here this morning. Maybe you're not a pastor. Maybe you're not a shepherd or an elder or some kind of church leadership. Maybe you don't even aspire to that. And yet you're wondering, what what relevance will this really have for me? Let me encourage you today that every one of us is called by God to not forsake the assembly, to be meaningfully and covenantally committed to a Christian church. And in light of that, every one of us has the obligation to love our pastors, serve our pastors, encourage our pastors, and at the right time, challenge our pastors to remain steadfast in the faith an old story from the life of, uh, well you guessed it, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, Spurgeon. One day this young couple comes up to him at his church and they travelled in from the country for a weekend in London and they made it their point almost as tourists to go and visit the great metropolitan tabernacle to hear the great Spurgeon preach. And at the end of the service, they went up to Charles Spurgeon and they said to him, we've never heard preaching like that in all of our lives. It was just amazing. It was life-changing. It was powerful. We're disappointed that now we have to go home to our, our own church and hear our own pastor. And Spurgeon said to them, I, I'm, I'm thankful for the sigh that just came across the audience here this morning. That was valid. I'm thankful for the response of Spurgeon, who said to them, and I'll, I'll paraphrase this, He said, you have the exact pastor that you deserve. That's what you have. As a a committed, covenanted member of that Christian church, as someone who is actually embedded in the church and called upon to, to serve your leaders as though it wouldn't be a burden to them, as though they would execute their office and their function with joy, your prayers for your pastor, your encouragement of your pastor, your continually uplifting and giving your pastor a sense of joy in the office of leadership is exactly what we, every one of us is called to do. And what that means is that it, it might be easy for us to travel to the next town and listen to the, the big name celebrity pastor and, and, and just kind of fawn over his gifts and elocution. That's possible. But then remembering that what God does is He puts the faithful ministers in local churches. And as we continue to encourage, as we continue to lift up and edify and bless and pray for our pastors, they will continually improve in their gifts and their talents and the calling of God. Charles Spurgeon was essentially saying, it's because you travel to London and fawn over the gifts of the great preacher in London, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and don't stay home and encourage your local pastor that he is struggling to be the kind of pastor that you think you deserve or that you want. It's quite the challenge indeed. Further to that, my, my calling here is to really address Ministers. And despite the fact that most of us here in this place probably aren't in ministry and don't aspire to ministry, there's great relevance for each and every one of us. But I'm going to spend the majority of the rest of our time together here as I speak in this session addressing ministers, pastors, leaders in local churches. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime against God to attempt to execute the office of overseer, minister or pastor without first ensuring... That we ministers are in the best possible spiritual condition Spurgeon wrote this or rather lectured this in his lectures to my students he said the best spiritual condition in other words we shall usually do the Lord's best work or our best work for the Lord when our gifts and graces are in good order and we shall do worst when they are most out of trim this is a practical truth Spurgeon says for our guidance when the Lord makes exceptions they do not prove the rule In a great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. He closes with this word, a word which I have to admit has haunted me for the two decades that I've been in vocational ministry. These are the closing words of Spurgeon. He says this, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God, a holy minister And yet, when we reflect upon that and what was prevailing as the norm in the day of Charles Spurgeon, or we reflect upon that and then we observe what is prevailing as norm in our modern-day Christian environment, we realize that compromise is everywhere. Compromise is actually the norm. Now, I want to preface by saying this. This will be close to the only point of encouragement ministers will get from me this morning. So, juice this for all it's worth, please. It has been a long and hard season for local church shepherds, so I do want to tread carefully indeed. What I don't want to do is pile on and give more pain to suffering ministers, and I don't want to be the final straw that breaks their backs. But we're in a war, and this is the front line. And those that are called to serve the church of God as overseers and shepherds and ministers must act and acquit themselves with the honor, the dignity the strength that God provides. It's been a hard season. It's been a terribly hard season. In fact, the statistics, particularly where I minister in the USA, are damning. Speak volumes to the, the difficulty and the challenge of what it's been like to minister through the COVID-19 and all the mess that that turned out to be, and, and the churches that are fracturing over, over different issues. I've been in elders' meetings of different churches that I've served and helped, where even in the elders, there is a broad spectrum of of convictions as to what we have to do as leaders of the church. It's been tough, it's been challenging. But here's the reality. I hope, ministers, I hope you did juice that for all it's worth. That's about as compassionate as I have the capacity to be. Ministers today face the same enemy, deal with the same pressure, combat the same spiritual temptations and onslaughts as ministers of every age. Certainly, this modern age has repackaged these pressures in novel wrapping, but they're always the same. Would you tolerate me for a few moments as I offer you a reading from what I consider to be probably the greatest book ever written on pastoral ministry by the Puritan Richard Baxter. It's called The Reformed Pastor. If you've never read it and you aspire to the ministry or you're already in some form of ministry, I want to encourage that to you here today. Download a copy. You should be able to find it free online. It was published in the 1600s. Or go and buy a new modern abridged version, The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter. He says this, take heed to yourselves, because the tempter will more ply you with his temptations than other men. That's what it means to be a leader in the church, right? That, that you stick your head up over the trench and you, you survey the battlefield. You, you, you run, you fight, you, you advance when all others cower and seek to pull back. Baxter says, if you be the leader against the prince of darkness, he will spare no He will spare you no further than God restrains him. He bears the greatest malice to those that are engaged to do him the greatest mischief. As Satan hates Christ more than any of us because he is the general of the field, the captain of our salvation, and he does more than all the world beside against his kingdom, so does Satan hate the leaders that are under him more than the common soldiers. He knows what a route he may make among them if the leaders... I'm having such a trouble with my technology here today, my screen just went blank. If the leaders fall before their eyes, and Satan grain, gains the greatest victory over others in the church. Have we seen that of late? Sidetrack, and I, I'm a little bit sensitive about saying this, but there was, a, there was a resource that was brought out, I think about 10 years ago. And the resource, I won't try and promote it or mention the name of the book or even the author, but the resource was really all about the, the, the challenges of ministry, the, the perils of ministry, being in ministry and having Satan put his crosshairs directly on you and fire round after round after round at you. And this whole book was written about how to survive in ministry. A book that's no doubt well needed, a book that was really well intentioned. And when that book was first brought out, I believe maybe Crossway published it, I'm not 100% sure. These endorsements on the back are five. Highly platformed, well-respected evangelical leaders can't find the original edition anymore because every one of those five endorsements has either abandoned the faith, anathematized, turned away from church, or got embroiled in such a scandal of money or or women or self-aggrandizing glory that they can no longer endorse such a resource. It's almost a proverb, it's a, it's, it's a byword in our day, that just give ministers enough time and their pornographic addiction gets the better of them. Or sleeping around, there was some damning statistics about 15 years ago when, when pastors in the U.S. Were, were surveyed anonymously. Over 70% confessed to being in the grip of permanent pornographic addiction. One in five, At that, I was surprised there was no response in the audience to that, you should be horrified but you are so conditioned to embrace that as just normal, that's where the church is at today. If that's not damning enough, one in five confess that beyond their pornographic addiction, one in five confess that they're actually engaged in in sexual liaisons with women in their church that aren't their wife. One in five. It's not an issue. It's the issue. Let me continue reading Richard Baxter. He says... The devil is a greater scholar than you, a nimbler disputant. The devil can transform himself into an angel of light to deceive. He will get within you. He will trip you up on your heels before you're even aware. He will play the juggler with you, undiscerned, cheat you from your faith and innocence. You shall not know that you have even lost these things. No, he will make you believe that your faith and innocence has multiplied and increased in the moment that you're collapsing. You shall see neither hook nor line, much less the subtle angler himself. While he's offering you his bait, and his bait shall be, shall be so fitted to your temper and disposition that he will be sure to find advantages within you and make your own principles and inclinations betray you. And whenever he ruins you, he will make you the instrument of ruin for others. Let's return to this scene in Acts 20. Paul calls the Ephesian elders to come and meet with him. And in doing that Paul reminds them he says day and night for 3 years i did not cease to warn you through tears Now could you if you if you tried today just with your imagination could you picture being there being one of these elders in the church at Ephesus uh, working alongside Paul uh, diligently passionately and every single morning Paul gathers the elders i don't know in his living room or, 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 or a local uh, meeting place and And Paul goes through the routine again. Guys, I'm warning you, stand firm, be steadfast, stay alert, guard yourself and the flock of God of which you've been appointed as overseers. If that happened every morning and every night for a week, you would presume you've got the message. Add to that, every time Paul engages in this, in this warning of these Ephesian elders, he can't help himself, but suddenly just end up in a, in a bath of tears, pleading with them, pleading with them, pleading with them. If that happened for a week, maybe by the end of it, you'd say, Paul, we know the routine, we know the warning, we get the admonition, we get it, we got it. But for three consecutive years, morning and night, Without cessation, day after day, Paul issues this warning. Many ministers today have lost a sense of the enormity of the threats against the Christian church. Peter warns the Christians to remember that their enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now this is where I see compromise today, and this is not necessarily new to our generation, but it certainly is indicative of our generation. Ministers, pastors, preachers indulge in as much sin as their conscience will allow, sometimes even a dash more. Then as a result of that, preach as softly and discreetly and non-combatively as you can about sin. Why is it? You You think about your Christian experience. Why is it there are certain sins that it's never really railed against and spoken of? Why do preachers often feel like they need to hold back? They need to tone it down. As a result, you preach softly. Then you make peace with as many of the antagonists as possible. Make peace. Make peace. Don't ruffle feathers. Don't be seen as combatant. And then you blunt the edge of your sword, which is the word of God, as much as possible so as not to cause undue harm when you wield it ministers who get the text and they start to preach the text of Scripture and in the text, they come across some extremely aggressive, sometimes violent propositions and they spend the entire 30-minute sermon trying to dull it, trying to dull it. What's next? Well, you know what's next. Nuance. 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 I got so tired of this about a year ago, I not always known to keep the peace, I went on Twitter and I just wrote one line, O for the lost art of lacking nuance, 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 and nuance, never allow generalizations to go unchecked, every affirmative statement subsequently dies the death of a thousand qualifications. This leads to then is rebuking sharply those who aren't a threat, and softly, maybe even unintelligibly, those that are a threat. Remember always, the chiefest virtue is what? Niceness. 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 A few months ago, I was working on some doctoral research at a university in South Carolina, And my instructor asked me to write a paper, a response paper, to Jesus' leadership. The premise of the entire thing was to to kind of reinforce what has become quintessentially paradigmatic of our day, the real pandemic. Jesus' leadership as defined as servant leadership, servant leadership. You've heard that. You've seen the books on that. You've seen preachers build platforms and popularity and make... Loads of money on the back of servant leadership. Now, let's lay aside the fact that it's already oxymoronic, following leadership, it's, it's, it's like the leader says, oh, I have to go in that direction. That's where everyone else is going. Then you're not the leader. Or You may have the title and the salary and the parking space out front, and you may have it written on your business card, but you ain't actually the leader. And I was prompted by a supervisor to write this response paper on Jesus' leadership, and I thought, well, this this is the best opportunity of all. Let's look at Jesus' leadership. Let's look at how many times Jesus went out of His way to not be nice, to actually pick a fight for the sake of truth, for the sake of the cause of the gospel, for the sake of demonstrating the supremacy of the Word of God and the reality that Satan is real, that hell is forever, and the gospel is the only remedy that sinners can every hope to find. In other words, niceness is the chief virtue. In other words, nothing like the apostles of Christ and nothing like Jesus himself. Don't misunderstand me. There were times when Jesus was very passionate and compassionate and sympathetic. But those are just as frequent in the text as him storming into the temple courts, having already braided a whip, swung it around his head, turn over tables, and commit felony assault on the people that are in there. It's just not an image of Jesus that you often find in the servant leadership books that make all the money and gain popularity. I was preaching on that text a few months ago at my home church, and I noticed something I'd, I'd not encountered before. Now, Jesus did this twice. He cleansed the temple twice in his earthly ministry. But on the one occasion I was teaching from, it actually says he sat down and braided a whip. In a court of law, you know what that's called? Premeditation. Sometimes when we look at that, 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 that scene of Jesus storming the temple and just, just completely flipping out, we kind of think of him as having lost control. But Jesus has never lost control. He's perfectly in control. He has the, the perfect mastery over his mind, his will, his emotions so many instances of the life of Christ where we see niceness and sympathy and compassion and just as many instances where he calls Herod that fox or he calls the Pharisees the whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Jesus wasn't put to death for being nice and agreeable. He was put to death because he stood against the false systems of religion that condemned souls to hell and the truth is worth fighting for. Men of courage, willing to confront error, sin, and deception at the door and call it what it is. It reminds me of an interesting case in the late 1600s. The late 1600s was a tumultuous year, particularly in London and England. They had a civil war, they decapitated a king, Charles I. They soon regretted it and thought, well, you know, we probably did need a king after all. Where's Charles's son hiding out? He was in France at the time. Do you think he would come back? he did, it was the most staggering event in in that period of history, Charles II returns, ascends the throne, and he establishes a new edict, which is, of course, known as the act of intoleration, the act of non-conformity. Now, in 1665 and 1666, a plague has begun to erupt in London, erupt, like erupt where there are 100,000 deaths in a matter of months like a real plague. (laughs) A real one. Oh, our modern sensibilities are so easily confronted and trampled on. 100,000 people die in a matter of months from the most acute pain and torture and no one could go near them because such was the contagion that this bubonic plague represented. What that meant was in London that all the aristocracy fled The king and his courts fled, everyone of any manner of wealth fled, and for 18 months they stayed out of London while the terror of the bubonic plague wreaked its havoc. You might ask, where were the ministers? Well, didn't you hear me say the aristocracy fled? The well-to-do, well-paid, living off the king's coin ministers fled with the king. But in God's sovereign providence, staggering thing had occurred. What's known as the Great Ejection in 1662, just a few short years prior to the bubonic plague wreaking its havoc in London, the king was so fed up with his men that had come to be known as the Puritans. A lot of times in church circles, we, we use that term as though it's flattering, as though it elevates someone to some theological height and, and colossal intellect, but... In this day and age, there could be very few things worse that you could be called than a Puritan. The king had had enough. He banished them all from the churches in London and over 2,000 ministers had been ejected from their churches. What's curious is when the great plague hits London and all the aristocracy and all the king's horses and all the king's men and all the king's paid ministers flee... These 2,000 ministers that seized the opportunity marched triumphantly back into London and ministered to the dead, the sick, the dying through the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the very risk where many of them would contract the bubonic plague and would suffer and many would die, this is what it meant to be a gospel minister. This level of starch, this level of conviction, this level of steadfastness, seems to have waned over the last few centuries, particularly in our day. Here's a question I have to ask in light of our text. Returning to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. To yourselves and to all the flock. To yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. Now is not a time for compromise. Now is not a time to elevate niceness as the chief virtue and look nothing like the ministry of Jesus and his apostles. Now is a time to recognize the value of the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's this curious phrase that Paul uses at the end of verse 28, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now elsewhere in this book that Baxter authored in the 1600s called The Reformed Pastor, I've already recommended it to you, elsewhere Baxter asks the question, how precious do you think, how how valuable do do you think people would estimate a vial of Christ's blood if it could be discovered today? If for for some... amazing, miraculous, archaeological dig, unearthed a vial of the blood of Jesus. This is hypothetical, of course, you know that. But if it could be unearthed, and it could be proven scientifically without any doubt that this actually was the blood of Jesus, the God-man, the Messiah, can you imagine how people would go crazy? Can you imagine how high the bidding would go on an auction that was offering an actual vial of Christ's blood? Imagine what Roman Catholicism would pay for that. Could you even imagine... But they would pay for that and then what abuses they would use it for could, 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 could you imagine what, what the billionaires of the world would do to get access and put it in their private collection could you imagine uh, could you imagine whoever was the successful bidder whoever was the highest bidder and managed to procure this scientifically verified vial of christ's blood could you imagine how fiercely they would guard it and protect it? Could you imagine, could you imagine the security system that they would design? The, the iron vaults and, and the titanium steel and the, and the safes within a safe, within a safe, within a safe, right? Behind a blockbuster somewhere, no one's looking. Could, could, could you imagine? How precious. What about the Christian church? What about you? What would you do if you could procure just a sample, just a small sample of the very blood of Jesus Christ now Baxter asks that question to the reformed pastor because then he poses this to you and I He says, if that's the amount of effort energy capital time resources people are willing to invest in a vial of Christ's blood what was the one thing what was the one thing that God decided was of greater value than the very blood of Jesus Christ, the church of God. The church of God. And e- even if this was a real scenario, even if this is hypothetical was a real scenario, and a vial of Christ's blood was genuinely unearthed and discovered and, and proved, ministers would go crazy. Pastors would go crazy. You know, the platform celebrity preachers with 20 jets and 300 mansions, you know, the guy... They would go crazy over this. And Baxter, Richard Baxter, in the Reformed pastor, wants to ask this question. Where is that level of concern and passion and dogmatism and resources invested in the church? Because God's already made a statement about the value of Christ's blood and the one thing on planet Earth that's worth more. The very one thing that God didn't hesitate to expend the very blood of Christ to procure and purchase is the very church of Jesus Christ. The great tragedy of our day is not so much that ministers downplay and undervalue the church. It's that Christians do. It's that Christians do. How, How much did it take to convince us all that church wasn't essential? I know you're sitting there, well, I was never that guy. Sure, okay, sure, hero status goes to two of you. How easy was it to downplay the value? And even now, I woke up with a headache. I'm going to skip church this morning. Well, I just can't. I can't do this weekend. I'm going away. I've got better things, better plans, better ideas. At the level of ministers who can stand firm, shepherds who stand firm for the faith, we don't begin to properly calculate with God's estimation the value of the Christian church. We can never expect that the sheep that we serve, the flock that we love and protect will ever establish that value for themselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is the church. Every one of us is guilty at different times of our life of downplaying the church. Maybe some of you are thinking right now, well, this guy doesn't know my church. Maybe that's true for his church, but our church, we're really nothing special. We're really nothing important. We haven't got a lot to boast of. We're kind of small and out of the way and podunk little congregation. It's the church that Jesus purchased with his precious blood that is the gathered assembly of the saints on every Lord's day. And the estimate that God has for your church may be infinitely greater than what you have for your church. And the same level of ministers, the charge is incumbent upon us who stand as ministers of the gospel, to be unflinching, to be incessant, to be clear, and to be perfectly willing to offend for the sake of the truth of Jesus Christ. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. They're already there. They're already in the church. They are already well sky. Jude speaks about these dreamers who secrete themselves within the congregation. They're there, sleeper agents, if you will, waiting for an opportunity to rise up, speak twisted things, drag disciples away, and bring utter ruin to the local church of Jesus Christ. Ministers, stand firm. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone With tears. And now, Paul says in closing, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is the calling of ministers. If you're here today and you're an elder, you're a deacon, you're a church leader of any sort, of any variety, of any flavor and genre, or maybe you aspire to be a minister, maybe you really feel like God's called you and you're kind of on the path, on the journey, working your way toward ordination and affirmation. The calling is to stand firm. The calling is to stand firm, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. May God bless his word to us here.